Hello, everybody. It's Mark Thurman again with the uh, IoT Innovators podcast series. And I've got a very interesting IoT innovator uh, that will be speaking with us today. Uh, um, David, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Who do you work for? And then we'll kind of jump into it. Hi, Mark. Uh, this is David Ferrier from Nestle. I'm currently the digital innovation architect in our small outpost here in San Francisco. What we are doing here, we're pretty much trying to see all the innovation aspects for the Nestle group, but more, more specifically on my side, our fo my focus is definitely on Internet of Things and how we are going to integrate that and how we are integrating that into our current landscape on the system side and also on the business side. That's pretty much my job. That's perfect. It's, it's, by the way, it's a really cool-sounding job. I think everybody listening will want your job, so you better do it well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, just for, for anyone's uh, edification, we met at a recent Amazon Web Services event that I uh, moderated and hosted in San Francisco about three weeks ago. And um, I must admit I was um, initially skeptical and surprised that we would want to bring in someone from Nestle. I didn't know what you guys were doing. And I came away actually with a totally different view uh, of, uh, you know, IoT in, in the maybe consumer use cases. So we talked really about two, and then I think we'll, we'll delve into it in a bit. But, you know, the, we talked about, you know, this notion of a connected coffee machine, and you kind of surprised me with the market impact, and also vending machines, which to me is a classic IoT use case. But why don't we kind of uh, jump in on the, uh, the, the use case that, that I was most skeptical about, which is connecting a home-type appliance, uh, in this case a coffee machine. Where are you doing that? What's that look like? How does it connect, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. Um, so I, I think everybody was a little bit skeptical when, when we first started to say, and we, we, we had some memes also on the Internet and things like that say, why would I connect the coffee machine? Which is the same, the same thing that we, you probably mentioned, like, why should I connect a toaster, right? That's right. To say, um, why should a toaster be connected? Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, we also need to think about what our new generations are going to look for, right? So when, when, when you look about what is the direction for the consumer side is that people are no longer expected things to work the same way. We need to augment their experience as much as possible. So one of the things that we, that we start looking and experimenting is to say, how can we connect a coffee machine in order to give a different experience for the consumers? Not only to give it a different experience for the consumers, let's be honest, we also wanted to try to understand what are the different different uh, cons uh, consumption habits from the same consumers. At the same time, we can provide better services for them. So what we initially thought was that about, uh, we, we start with uh, our, our machine in Japan, and Japan being a very nice market where it's very, very innovative and people are willing to take such an experiences. Right. So what we started over there was really say, okay, how, how do you usually drink your coffee. And sometimes what we notice is that people press like twice the button because they say, you know what, I wanted to have like double the shot or even like more water or less water or things like that. People would just remove the, the, um, the, the cup in the middle of mm -hmm. the brewing of the coffee and things like that. So we say, okay, what if we try to handle that in a different way, augmenting the same machine on a uh, mobile app experience? So that's where we started, and what we saw was actually like a very, a very good adoption on that market to say, oh, by the way, I can do my, my own recipe, and my own recipe stays with me on my phone, and I can bring around every single machine that I go, right? So this was the first experience that we have in Japan, which is quite interesting, uh, bringing the recipe aspect for, for the machine. Mm -hmm. And then, so, of course, in, in other words, I like one, one hit of sugar or one thing of cream or whatever, or just I like it super strong, or at this exactly. time of day I, like, I want decaf or whatever. Yeah, and also you can have like different type of beverage, like I want a latte, uh, but you know, David's latte is different than Marcus' latte. Marcus' latte has like uh, twice as much creamer 
than liquor. It has liquor. I mean, right. I'll let you in That's on the well. secret. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or even the different type of, uh, of syrup that you want to put over there. Uh, right. Again, it's, it's, it's just a matter of uh, how, how you do that experience from, from the consumer aspect directly into the machine. Uh, we, also, we also play around a lot, and actually this is also something that brings uh, the value. It's to say it's not, it, it's, uh, because you have a, a phone, or because you have a connected machine, this is no longer a solo experience. You can also try to bring aspects from the social aspects, right? So when I go and brew my coffee, I can also send a message to my colleagues or even to my friends to say, okay, it's David's drinking a coffee. Maybe Mark, it's, you also receive that message and say, okay, uh, let me like, give me like five minutes. I'm just going to have a coffee time with David and things like that. This is also resonating with some of our consumers. Again, we're still testing that. Uh, and to be honest, the, the feedback that we got was very, very good on this part. Okay. So try to, try to bridge experiences, both on the homes aspect as well as the office aspect, because coffee machines is something like a mix. You can go like a, a small office, home office type of scenario. Uh, this, this also brings better experience when it comes back to the connecting machines. Right. So this go on. Yeah, I just I, I want to get a quick question in. So um, you know, there's generally when you, when you have a device, whether it's a medical device or a coffee uh, maker, um, there's generally sort of two or three aspects to it. One, at least in my observation, one is I want to monitor how the device itself behaves. So is the thing, you know, do you need to change the filter? Do you need some sort of maintenance? And the other track is you know, again, in the medical world, uh, you want to monitor the heart monitor itself and then also the patient. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what you're doing is, is consumer preferences, but are you also monitoring the device itself to see how it's uh, withstanding the rigors of a certain environment? We, we do, but we, we have to, to bear in mind two things. I mean, for instance, um, a small coffee machine even the maintenance of that is very simplistic, right? We are talking about the scaling or filtering parts and things like that. So we do monitor. We also suggest to the, the consumer say, oh, it's about time for you to change the uh, – to do a descaling of that part or also change the filter for the machine. Now, okay. when it comes back to continuous or proactive monitoring, this is more important for us when, when we have, like, professional machines, like uh, vending machines or even bigger machines that goes to restaurants and things like that. That's mm -hmm. where we, we, we take a closer monitor on different parts of the machine. We call the, the big telemetry part of, the, of, of that machine. In this case, we also do preventive maintenance of some of those machines on that part. Now, That's when right. it comes back to the consumer, when you go back to the consumer uh, aspect, even do the preventive, those machines are – are able to last between uh, three to five years, right? And those are very cheap machines. We, mm -hmm. And even the replacement of the machines becomes easier. So uh, doing, doing more monitoring on multiple aspects of the machine is probably going to increase so drastically the cost of the machine that doesn't make any sense, at least at this moment in time. Maybe in the future that will probably make sense, but giving all the sensors costs and, and, and the different costs of one single machine, um, it, the, the 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 cost for that doesn't really make any sense for for everything to be monitored. Now on the heart rate, that's a different discussion, right? Because you really need to monitor the patient's life, exactly. right? Which different, is also different use case, but yes, definitely definitely different use case. And also we talk about real time com uh, compared to something that doesn't have to be real time. Also true. Now, but although the the, the real time or the near real-time nature of the use case you just described, which I hadn't thought of either, which is Mark is having a cup of coffee. Let me, you know, alert, you know, Mark's friends and his, in his right. you know, permission to work group that it's time to have a cup of coffee together. I, I think mm -hmm. that's kind of an interesting thing because it's a, a community builder. And if David comes up, as you've just said, he knows that you like this. And if Joe comes up, uh, he likes that. So that, that's Absolutely. kind of an that, and it also, you know, there's some interesting statistics uh, that could come up, like you always have coffee on Thursdays with this group of people, or some of that stuff might be actually of interest, you know, less no, about people. But. Yeah, but it, it goes back again to say the, the difference between 
a medical device, right? Where you need to have like the delay can be a maximum of maybe two, three seconds compared to something like, even, even like doing a push notification, say, is David drinking coffee? If I take 30 seconds of the, of the delay, it's not a major issue That's right. to broadcast such a message. Now, when you talk about the med, a medical device, 30 seconds is live or death. Right, so you need to be careful right. when, when we talk about that. So, for, uh, in our case, we do take that into consideration. We do have some aspects that we do real time, especially when it comes back to the industrial parts, which mm -hmm. is required. But when it comes back to the consumer, we also need to value, and, and this is also um, a suggestion for everybody. Every, everybody in your business is probably going to say, I need real time. It's up to us in, in the IT world that actually to understand the cost of real time to challenge back the business to say, okay, let's imagine that I have a real time aspect on the coffee machine. What does that mean? It does mean that let's imagine that that machine is not performing well right now. Are you going to, say, to send a sales representative to fix that machine at real time? Uh, it's probably not going to be uh, a, a business model that you want to get because it's going to be super expensive. So it's also important for us on the IT side to challenge, to challenge a little bit of the business when it comes back to real time and what is the best experience for the consumer. No, I think I, I, it's a, it's it, it. Basically, what you're saying is let's uh, let's leverage an appropriate use of technology given the use case, because I think you you rightly stated, and again, this is my own, my opinion. You know, do I really need to know within four milliseconds that the filter is 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 bad? I mean, you don't. You know, or mm -hmm. you just don't. But you know, kind of I overlay a, another thing that again came out at this uh, AWS thing that you and I were at a couple weeks ago which was the use case that uh, one of the other participants talked about regarding Amway and their um, clean air filter. You know, they had a, they have this notion of uh, monitoring the filter usage and whether or not the person maintained it properly. And if the machine has determined that you've been maintaining your, your air filter, which was a $1,200 air cleaner or air purifier, to say it more accurately, uh, they would actually extend your warranty or give you a double warranty. Is that a useful thing in your world? Um, it, it is, but it also depends. Again, goes back to the cost of the of, of the cost of the machine itself, right? So w when we do have professional machines that cost almost the same, we do have the same um, deal with the establishment, and this is kind of the B two B two C scenario instead of mm -hmm. the B two C directly on our side. That's so right. in this case we go back to say, okay, you're doing a proper maintenance, and even if you don't do a maintenance, what we do is actually we prevent you to brew a coffee. Ah. Just because, you know what, you're not going to do that because you didn't, for instance, clean up the, the milk, um, the, the milk right. tubes, for instance, because the milk tubes need to be rinsed and cleaned every day. So if you don't do that, uh, the quality of the beverage is going to be bad and I'm not even going to brew that because then you're going to complain about, let's say, for an espresso, that it's not really the espresso fault. It's actually the establishment fault that didn't clean up the, the milk. So th those are the things that we're also trying to prevent on that to make sure that people understand maintenance, cleansing, and things like that, even though we do that automatically, uh, it's still going to be part of the day-to-day -day operations of, of such machines. That's interesting. And, and I mean, it really is. I mean, it, it, and I guess what would arise from that is that you might get best practices as a result of looking at hundreds and hundreds of machines, which is an, a, you know, a very typical analytics use case out of uh, certainly the enterprise side of, of IoT. On the consumer Absolutely. side, you know, you Absolutely. wouldn't always imagine it. And, and also helps in terms of training. Right, because one one of the aspects when you get like professional machines is that you probably need to send a person to like a two days training and things like that. So nowadays we just go like one person do the first training and then because the machine is self-explanatory and also gives you okay this is step by step that you see on the machine. It also helps on the training for new people to onboard on the maintenance and also how to handle the machine. Okay. No, it makes perfect sense. By the way, to the extent that you are comfortable with this and you can give me a generic, you know, more than kind of number, how many of these connected coffee machines do you have out there roughly? Uh, roughly, if, if I go for the consumer machines, we have something around 
between four hundred thousand and six hundred thousand only in Japan. Wow! And this is going. This is now spreading around uh, Mexico and a little bit on Europe. Not every uh, every country in Europe. So we're expecting to have something like a million in uh, a year time. Only only for that type that that model. Right, that, uh, we that, also that particular, yeah. That, I mean, that's yes. just, uh, just we'll, we'll use the half, half a million to a million number. That's a phenomenal right. installed base of a you know, connected consumer product, product, if you will. I mean, the only thing I think that would rival it would be you know, the smart thermostats and things of that nature. So that's, right. that's quite a lot. Congratulations. Right, right. I mean, that's great. <laughs> thanks, thanks. But it also goes, goes back to the aspects of the cost of the machines. That's why the, the machine is becoming like, cheaper. Mm-hmm. Over the years, right? So we we also we also push very hard into when it comes back to the bill of materials and cogs to say those machines need to be very cheap, need to be very sturdy because we don't want it to replace all of those machines, right? Mm-hmm. And but it, it takes time before the release of such machines into the market. Now, do you find that the data is useful enough such that you might subsidize slightly uh, the Cost. I mean, I see this in other uh, in other right. verticals. I think I think in terms of the subsidize the cost, we we already subsidize the cost in terms of the the cost of the machine. We don't we don't take we don't make money out of the machine. Let's be, let's be let's be honest. The machine okay. for us is not like something that is a revenue for us. What we do make is actually the product. Now, when it comes back to right. subsidize, there's a different aspect when it comes back to the data transfer. So most of the machines that I just mentioned are Bluetooth enabled, so we don't mm-hmm. pay the cost of the data transfer. It's there's actually, no transport. Uh, That's right. Exactly. Uh, so it's an augmentation directly on the mobile application. And it's okay because even for the consumers that is peanuts, there's actually nothing in terms of the data. Now, right. when we talk about the new machines, specifically like markets like Japan, they are so advanced in when it comes back to LTE or even 5G going forward. Um, we're also thinking about releasing a machine that has the least friction to the consumers, which mm-hmm. is based on either LTEM and BIOT or even 5G already That's embedded. Right. That is the part where we believe that we can do like um, a proper subsidi- uh, subsidizing the whole data cost based on subscriptions. That, that, that is something that we are definitely looking into it. Well, for commercial machines, and, and I've seen this in right. you know, the connected, uh, I had an example in the presentation I gave around um, a connected rubbish bin, you know, the, the Big mm-hmm. Valley Solar. Um, right. You know, an aspect that they considered, I, I believe, and I think this is very publicly well known, is you know, putting digital signs on that so you can sell you know, maybe some ads, and, uh, as well as uh, maybe making it a, a Wi-Fi hotspot. So you can, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. without burdening the bomb, the bill of materials too much, you can actually, right. and, and we also, you know, at, at the presentation we, that you and I met at, you know, we had the guy from Vizio, the CTO of Vizio, mm-hmm. talking about how the TV has a, a tail of, I think, 10 bucks a year in terms of uh, the ability to sell the analytics. I know the use case right. is a little bit different here for either a vending machine or, or a office or, or expensive home coffee machine. But, you know, I think people, the Nestle's of the world, your own employer would probably be very interested in consumer habits. And maybe you have no, partners absolutely. in your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when, when, when it comes back to the, to the professional or B2B side of the machines, we do have, like, of course, the whole data. We cannot rely on Wi-Fi or even um, Ethernet type of connections. We do have like modems installed there for, for, for sending the data. This is part of the package anyway. So right. what we are seeing in the future is that those machines are probably going to have bigger LCD displays. And those bigger LCD displays are going to be used also for campaigns, like there's a new product. So do you know about this new product? Or there's a new recipe for a coffee. So we're talking about like um, cold brew. So mm-hmm. how you do a cold brew on a standard machine. So we can, we can give you like step-by-step directly on the machine how to do that part. In this case, we are, reci- we are actually broadcasting new recipes from our central uh, CMS into those machines. And also 
it's it, it's important for us to understand the because we are a global organization. We're not talking about a single language. We need to uh, to broadcast the content in multiple languages. So th this becomes actually very important for us to say such machines need to have the ability to receive new contents depending on promotions, depending on the language, depending on the geographic location of that. Because the recipes might be different. The way that you prepare. Um, uh, Longo in the U.S. is completely different than you prepare uh, Longo in Italy. Right. So the amount of water is different. So we, we need to adjust for that um, geolocations or geographic needs, if you prefer. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what Americans, and I, I, I used to work for a gigantic global telco. Um, Americans don't realize that we drink coffee a lot more, you know, a lot stronger coffee than they do, say, in the U.K., which is why they call it Americano when they hear my accent when I arrive in London. <laughs> oh, you want an Americano? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of preference for us, it's, uh, exactly. which makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, you got surprised to say how the Japanese drink coffee or even the Greeks drink coffee differently, even within Europe. So it's a matter of, it's a matter of adjustment for the preference. That's right. So, okay, we talked about coffee machines. We talked about vending mm -hmm. machines. What other kinds of uh, beverage uh, distribution machines do you, are you guys connecting? What other kinds of uh, IoT devices are you guys uh, connecting currently? Right. We do, we do have, like, on the, on the consumer space, it's pretty much coffee, but we also have, like, um, uh, infant, infant formula uh, mm -hmm. machine called Babyness. Which oh. is uh, available specific more broadly in in China in Europe. It's not so big in in the US, uh, which is also very interesting because it really do the complement complementary um, for for the breast milk. So we do, of course. There's no such thing. We, we don't want it to replace breast milk. But when it comes back to the complementary parts, that's that's the part that we do more. On the on on that type of machine, but we also have on the professional side, we also have uh, different beverages like um, Milo, which is a cocoa-based uh, drink, specifically in Asia, that it's uh, very very well distributed on that part, uh, as well as different type of smoothies that goes on the same machine. So those are those are the major ones that we do right now, and. There are more to to come into the pipeline. Interesting. So, you uh, you described half a million to a million of these coffee makers overall. And again, I, I'm not looking for exact uh, specifics, but just I would not have thought of Nestle as a um, a big deployer, if you will, of of IoT devices. But it sounds like you have millions of of things connected right now. Is that is that an accurate statement? Uh, I think I think it's going to go closer to that. Uh, the professional machines, the the numbers are not that big. I, I I have to be honest. I don't have the numbers right in my head right now. They're not small though, but they are not like that that massive when it comes back to the to deployment. But the numbers are going closer to. Or actually, if if I count Nespresso on that uh, on that scene, they're there are going to be more than millions on that part. But wow. again, not all of them are connected, uh, okay. and that is the work that we are doing right now. I think by 2020, more than 50%, hopefully more than 50% of our machines are going to be connected. Wow. And that, that's actually, it sounds like a reasonable pace. You guys aren't connecting just for the sake of connecting, which I think a lot of, a lot of folks did that early on. They, you know, right. I, I, always, I always imagined that at, at the CEO level, at the board level, they have a board call where a board member says something to the effect of, I'm reading about this IoT stuff. Uh, are, you, are you doing anything in that space? And the CEO all of a sudden looks around and says, yes, of course we are. We're connecting everything. And I think a lot of the early deployments were really gut level. I've heard we should connect this stuff, um, but then they didn't really have a use case to support it. Right. What, what we did in Nestle, um, that's, a, that's a very good point that you just mentioned, Mark. What we did in Nestle is that there was like silo initiatives, and most of the companies you're going to have silo initiatives that are trying to connect. So what 
we just put like back and actually we send that to also to our board members. We send like our different strategies to say, okay, we know that this is coming. We know that this is becoming important. So before we start experimenting exponentially and that becomes more difficult for us to centralize uh, the ways of operating. Because you know what? You don't want to get into a situation like um, the Cherokee or, the, um, or even the Google Gmail account on their Samsung fridge got it. We, we, we don't want it to get such a security risks going right. forward. So what we, what, what we tried to, to, to put back in 2015 was to say, yes, we know that this is coming. We know that we already have some initiatives. Let's centralize that part, and let's make sure that from the IT perspective, we are going to do the same thing for everything that we do in Nestle for, for, for data acquisition. And that's where we start uh, the journey. So the journey now is becoming more mature. We are actually very, evolving very fast. But again, it takes time and it also takes money because you cannot just do it for the sake of doing it. That's right. Now, you know, I think that that's a very, it's a very sober way to do it as well. You know, always has to have a business case associated with, but with it. And as you've pointed out, there's a cost which is, you know, a burden to the bill of materials. And every product manager knows how to, you know, cut pennies and half pennies and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're looking to reduce it. And the good news is for IoT, the cost of communications modules has gone down drastically. And even in, in this application, you're, you're not sending a lot of data. So I think your data, especially over, the, over telco networks, your data costs are going to be minimal. I want to know if the thing's empty or full. You know, I want to know if the thing's broken or if the thing's moved. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a couple times a week I want to know, let me see how this, you know, how the new flavor's going. I mean, that was like the, yeah. um, I think it was a Coca-Cola that was doing the freestyle machines where, you know, you can mix and match your own beverage. I mean, that was another sort of similar case of a connected vending environment without talking about, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if they're perceived as a competitor or not, so I'm not trying to go down that path. But the notion of a connected, you know, vending machine where it lets you know if you're out of a certain syrup, and, but it's also giving you user, user preferences in reasonable real time, not even near real time, I think is of value. And it's, it's, I know they've done quite a lot with it. Some of the various, you know, soft drink uh, uh, dispensaries are connected now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, th- th- this is one. It's a very good, I would say, business case. Everybody trying to look about that, uh, especially when Coca-Cola did that, that side. We, we are, of course, everybody's listening to that. Uh, on our side, we wanted to do a little bit of a difference because we don't have the same syrups that they have, but we have different uh, beverages. And we want mm-hmm. to understand how consumers do beverages overall, right? So let's imagine uh, one region, they prefer a cappuccino compared to um, espresso. So should we do better promotions on cappuccino than espresso or things like that? That, that is the part that we get better insights. And I, I believe everybody's trying to get the same insights when it comes back to the consumer preference. That, that's, that's definitely some value for us on the data. No discussion. No, absolutely. So I, I guess, you know, you know, kind of further question, and again, you're not, I'm not looking for you to disclose any, any internal confidential information, but in general, do you implement this on your own? Do you bring in outside implementation partners? I'm not talking about specific okay. vendors, but just, you know, like, do, do you have a sufficient IoT, IT staff internally? Uh, it's a mix, right? We, we started, actually, we started very, very small, myself plus uh, three guys, wow. and we start doing the proper research and try, try to change a little bit of the understanding because, you know, there is a traditional way to, uh, let, let's forget about IoT in terms of the hardware. Let's think about IoT in terms of data acquisition first. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the part that we're trying to focus on our side to say, okay, data acquisition, people usually think about, okay, let's dump that into a database or things like that and say, okay, let's rethinking about that. Let, let's take a look about what is the industry is going forward. So that's where we are looking for cloud providers um, and see what are the best practices what they are doing. Uh, we we learned that very fast, and that's one of the things that I would suggest for any other company. Say, just take a look at what is there. Take a look about what are the best practices that they have, and try to learn for that how to adapt into your business. So that's what we did. And then 
with that, what, what we just created for, um, we did a ramp up for a one year that we have uh, an, an SI with us, a system integrator mm -hmm. that help us doing that part. At the same time, we are already doing the knowledge transfer for what we call our industrialization team that lives in Barcelona. So during that one year time, there is a lot of uh, KT happening between our SI and our industrialization team. Now our industrialization teams are more, I would say, self, uh, they, they, they can do it by themselves, let's self -sufficient. put it this way. They are self-sufficient, but self-aware of what's happening and also um, understanding how to handle with the cloud providers themselves, which is actually something that we learned over the year. Now, of course, we're still using the, some, some of the SIs for uh, new projects, specifically when it comes back to new hardware components, because some, some of the hardware components are completely new, and we need to have the, those SIs in place. Mm -hmm. But when it comes back to data acquisition, we are definitely self-sufficient on this part. So you, 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 you go from a certain uh, phase of discovery with external right. help, and then it goes to business as usual, you know, BAU. At that point, your team takes it over, and then you, on the innovation side, might focus with the integrator on new projects. So there's always a yeah. sounds like there's a cycle of knowledge transfer and BAU, you know, business as usual, and innovation that seems to occur. Definitely, definitely, and, and this is like continuous improvement, right? Uh, especially when especially when it comes back to new technology. One of the points that you just mentioned is like, what is the data acquisition, or sorry, data tra uh, transit that you have. You have um, telcos provider doing that part, but you also have like different uh, protocols like HomeKit or um, Zigbee or any, any other type of uh, data transmission. And we are learning and actually we are experimenting on that part. That's where our SI is becoming important for us. Got it. So I guess, you know, beyond talking to a systems integrator or systems integrators, you know, you're, you're located in, in the Bay Area. You obviously, you know, uh, have, because it's a global company, you're traveling quite frequently. My question is, how do you actually, you and your team, you and your teams, how are you actually learning this stuff? Are you going to uh, events? Are you reading analyst reports? Are, are you just kind of, do you have a lab where you're just trying a bunch of crap out, hoping that uh, you figure it out on your own? Just, what's, what's, the, what's, what's the initial, you know, the initial part of the journey has to be some sort of knowledge acquisition. How do you guys do it? Well, we have a lot of, I mean, Nestle being Nestle, we have like the big names. We have some, sometimes vendors coming into us and even saying, do you want it to try or something like that? And of course, we wanted to try most of the things. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot try everything. But the things that we do, for instance, the things that I do here in San Francisco, I have like a very, very small um, workshop here. Mm -hmm. We do a, a lot of tests on that part. Uh, I used to call myself one well, part of my job is that I do things that nobody really cares because we just keep doing and experimenting. Sometimes we just drop things, and sometimes we just come back and say, you know what, that might make a lot of sense. And when we see something that makes sense, then we try to put back into the business to say, guys, have we thought about that? Can we try to integrate this? Uh, that's one aspect that we say that we push things to the, to the business. The other aspect with that is that we definitely have our R&D centers, and our R&D centers, they also talk with different providers, and they come back with different technologies or even different strategies that they come back to us to say, we have this and that provider. Uh, do you guys are willing to discuss with that, or it doesn't make any sense? That's where we also get a lot of acquisition in terms of the knowledge for that. So we have like a push and pull approach. Okay. Now, do you pay attention to things like awards or... Um uh, you know, uh, market research studies from any of the big names? We do, we do, we do. Um, I, I would say, <laughs> honestly, we do, we, we pay a lot of uh, attention to CB Insights. It's actually, it's a very, very good source for us to take okay. a look on that. Um, we also pay attention, I mean, one of my, my best uh, sources becomes, of course, uh, Harvard Business Reveal, ah. which, which sounds very interesting because they, they, they go back not only about the technology, but also about what are the different aspects that you say, is this going to change your business? How? 
this is also important for us. Even though I'm a geek, I prefer the technology myself, but I cannot sell technology only for the sake of technology, right? So we need to understand what is going to be the differential, uh, differentiation when it comes back to the business side. No, I think it makes perfect sense. I, and and I'm, I'm assuming you attend not only, the, to use your term, the geek conferences, and I'm a geek too. Um, right. I sometimes use the word nerd because it sounds like, you know, sometimes... <laughs> Either, either one, you know, my kids say, you know, those are neither word is really something they want to refer to their father as, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, but conferences in general, uh, do you find any of them helpful? We do. Uh, one one of the things that we also part of is actually the IoT consortium, IoT. Okay. Um, we try to attend as, as much as possible for that because there are different things when we're trying to say. And I, I, I believe a new standard or a new ways of working might happen in the, in the near future. So we need to keep our ears on, on, on that side. Uh, we do for big conference. We do go for big conference when uh, on the IT side as well on the IoT side. We try to attend as much as possible. Definitely. Well, I'll put in a plug for the one that I, I help with, which is at, at MIT uh, called Connected Things. Uh, I'll be after this call. I'll be uh, inviting you separately. But uh, awesome. we, you know, we do an annual conference where um, actually we had Dirk Didaskalu, the the head of uh, AWS IoT, is one of our keynotes uh, this calendar year. The next one's March twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. But um, you know, those conferences where they're hosted in an academic or semi academic uh, environment mm-hmm. to me, you know, they're less commercial, less salesy, which is one of the things I like about it. I, I find that most people like just to get the information and also want to mm-hmm. network with their peers. And it's less about you know a vendor giving me a free T-shirt, and it's more about <laughs> you know how do how do I solve the problem. But interesting, a few years ago, you mentioned you know Harvard Business Review, and Michael Porter's been writing writing on this topic and had a well-known series of articles. I want to say about three four years ago. And right, we had him exactly. as one of our, our – uh, we did a fireside chat with him uh, on, during that time period when the, he had like a series of, I think, three months or three issues that it came out. So he came and uh, presented. It was quite interesting. And I think you're right. It's, it's really – the geek issues are, are speeds and feeds. The business issues and the commercial issues are, are the ones that are uh, – that people certainly in your role and the folks that I work with all over, you know, those are the issues that really matter because – you know, there's a zillion modules out there and communications protocols, and you know, there's that. That's uh, that's uh, it's tactical, not strategic, in a sense. In Absolutely, terms of bits yeah. and pieces. But um, one thing that we talked about a little before the the call started was, and I, again, we're not looking at name specific vendors, but I guess my question is, you know, you you have a multi vendor environment. Okay, you're mm-hmm. on the innovation side, so you're saying, hey, in a perfect world, I'd like to make these things in this way. But how, how do you deal with sort of, the, and you talked about the IoT consortium, how do you deal with A, the lack of standards, B, you've got integrators, you've got communications providers, you've got all that. How are you dealing with this multi-vendor uh, environment? How's that working out? Well, it's never easy, right? Uh, especially when, when it comes back to the, the innovation or actually the, the bleeding edge always comes back into different uh, pockets of technology. So, what we're trying to do is try to concentrate on two to three major vendors, right? Just say, let's say cloud provider, we are going to have like two to three or even one for now, but mm-hmm. we're also looking for a two to three. One of the things that we don't want it to get into it is to be locked on on a vendor forever, right? Because right. That, that, that is um, a thing that most of the companies don't want it to get it, even though it's difficult to change. I'm not saying it's easy to change, but just make sure that whatever, whatever you're going to design is something that can be moved around, right? So let's yeah. say if I'm designing an aspect of data acquisition on, let's say, provider A, that same data acquisition can be done on provider B. So make sure that you're not locked into a dedicated or a specific technology for that side. Now, what we are, the, the, the difficult part on that is specifically what, what you're saying, uh, Mark, is that when it comes back to different protocols and I need to, to, write, to, to create my hardware, that is the part that becomes difficult and I need to do some trade-offs on this side. So should I put like a Sigfox, LoRa, 
uh, antenna on the same machine, or I will drop that out right now, and I'm going to create like only small pockets for the Sigfox LoRa on a very, very small trial base. And if that becomes um, significant, then I can retrofit later on. We do that part, but it's not that easy. I have to be honest. It's, it's something that we struggle in order to keep the pace on this part. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I think a lot of people are having that struggle. I know coming from a telco background, we typically say that anything that's not licensed, the support model is not the same. I know we talked about this at the uh, AWS conference, uh, and there was a gentleman in the audience pushing LoRaWAN, as a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which, again, is unlicensed. I know uh, I believe it was Comcast in the U.S. that's adopted that uh, standard. Sigfox hasn't really taken off that much in the States. Obviously, it's a French uh, driven protocol, so there's a little bit more European support. The operators are pushing in BIOT and CADM, CADM1. So it's, I, I mean, look, it's in, in a way, it's great to be the customer like you, and in another mm-hmm. setting, it's like, holy crap, what if I make the wrong decision? Because, you know, commercial machines will live in the field for 3, 5, 10, 12 years. Yeah, so, and, and, and in the end, it comes back to say, if we're going to release that, make sure that you have, like, um, medium to long-term agreement with type of uh, vendor provider like your telco provider, or even if it is Sigfox, make sure that you have like a medium to long-term agreement for that before you release the machine. But in, in, on the test phase, everything works fine, right? So I do some tests, uh, and it works okay. When I go back to the field and I put that into the field, I see the struggles. That's why we do pockets of tests, and we do tests in different locations, remote locations, to see what is going to be the coverage. To be no, honest. makes perfect sense yeah. to do that, by the way. It's prudent. Right. Uh, but anyway, you, I cut you off a little bit. To be honest, you were going to say. No, no. no, I was just saying, like, to be honest, uh, the labs work much better than when you go to the field. The field part is actually, that's why we do like small tasks for, for the field side to say, let's put on that and that location. And if that doesn't work, uh, hard decisions are taken to say, okay, let's pull the plug on that technology. And sometimes that's what's happening. Look, I, I mean, I, I think uh, folks in the you know, US-based product planners and, and technologists don't often realize that connectivity is non-trivial. And connectivity outside of the U.S. emerging markets, which you know, uh, uh, you know Middle East, Africa, et cetera, et cetera, two uh, G is still sort of prevalent. Three G is aspirational, although that's you know now three G is becoming a little bit more prevalent, and four G is aspirational. And I think they people always assume that the environment here in in the states or the environment in in, in Western Europe, you know, so-called richer countries is the same everywhere, and it's just, it's not. I mean, it's just... Unfortunately not, yeah. That's you know, so you, you have to be aware of that from data, data usage, data transmission. Uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all. And you cost. Know, and yeah, cost, and cost. Cost becomes, yeah. No, absolutely. So, and, and, you know, back on the vendor question, so you, you're in the enviable position of, of um, you can say to the various vendors, I, uh, and I guess the question that will emerge from this is, do you do this? But you can say to the vendors, I want to choose one from column A, one from column B. Your column C, I need you to make your stuff work with A and B. Is that a, a scenario that, that you have to work with, or do you just kind of try and find the most compatible A, B, and C? Um, it depends on the circumstances, right? So we, 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 sometimes we try to say, okay, if I go for a global partner on whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And the global partner has like the global partner handles different geographics, and comes back to say, you know what, your your cost of doing business in uh, West Africa, for instance, right. uh, are going to be paid based on the global agreement that we have. That is one scenario. Uh, but sometimes we don't have the luxury of going like that, and sometimes we need to go for a different provider. And in this case we need to handle that ourselves because it's not that easy. So it, it, it really depends on the different aspects. We try to go as much of, as much of the time uh, on a global scenario so we can leverage like global agreements for that. Yep. But, I mean, there are different regions like China, for instance, that it's not that easy to go like that. You need to, to handle by yourself. 
So that that is the part that we even struggle on that with multiple vendors on this side. And we also try to say those vendors need to comply with my different protocols. And that is that is like a, I would say a little bit of struggle on this part. But we're going on that on, on this side. Yeah, I can I can imagine because you just want one you know, globally managed scenario where everything is uniform and that's not, not always possible. Um, mm-hmm. Again, because you're, you're operating in so many different regions, uh, regions of the world. Um, I, I guess, you know, sort of my next, and this will, we're going to come close to, you know, uh, what I think is a reasonable time for a podcast. But um, so you're a gigantic, global, well-known brand. How do early uh, early stage companies come into play when it comes to your uh, your innovation strategy, especially around IoT. There's a lot, you know, obviously there's a lot of big players, big gigantic telephone companies, big gigantic cloud companies, but sometimes the innovations come from the startup world. How, how do you mm-hmm. work with them? So it's, it, being here in the Silicon Valley help us on this part, right? So we have like companies. I'm going to make, name some of them. Like, sure. Let's take an example like Helium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a startup company. Uh, they're trying to go better in U.S., and we are working with them trying to understand how that, how, how their protocol are going to help us on different um, areas, even to reduce cost. And with that, we do like small prototypes. We try to say, okay, that doesn't work for me or that does work for me. Have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? And we try to work side by side with them to say, does that make sense for you as long as it makes sense for us? Or because w- w- the position that we don't want to get is to say, okay, you need to make that work for Nestle, and I don't care about your business, right? So right. We, try to, we, we try to make um, a common sense to say, does that make work for you as, as, work, uh, as work for me? If that doesn't, uh, let's see how can I compromise or if I cannot compromise. Um, okay, it was a good experiment, but we cannot move forward. That's, that's, that's how we are handling most of the time for, uh, for our uh, startups. And we do, have, we do have a lot of startups, not only on the IoT, but also on the other sides. They are working very well with us. Uh, it's just a matter to say, is that a good synergetic approach or it's not, right? And, and, and I think it goes for everything when it comes back to, to innovation. What we really wanted to try to, to go here in Nestle is to say, Guys, we don't really want it to go to be like the big gigantic monster in the corner that is say you need to comply to myself. But what we wanted to do is to say, how can we work together? That's more the approach that we're taking. And for well, that approach, we need to we need to test and we need to experiment. The other thing, the thing I wanted to interject that I like hearing, having worked in the startup side of things for a while too is that you're not trying to break the vendor. You're not trying to destroy someone's business. You're actually being collaborative, not punitive. Uh, that's always the, you know, any early stage company, uh, when they approach a giant like a Nestle or, or, or any of your, your peers, a lot of times they don't want to approach you because it's like, oh, crap, it's going to be a time sink. They're going to want to do right. a free pilot. It's going to be, you know, two years of playing, and then I might get a small deal for a few thousand dollars. And, you know, it works against larger players because they're not seeing things emerging from, you know, the labs until right, they're right. fully commercialized. So I like the attitude, I would say, um, of working with innovative, you know, startups. I, I, I rarely hear that expressed. So I think that's fantastic. Well, we, we, we learn a lot, let's be honest, right? It, it didn't happen like from we, – we are here for more than four years now. Mm-hmm. Right, so we learn a lot with that part, and I I also have to be honest. Sometimes some of the startups they are just there to say, uh, guys, can you invest on me? And if it makes sense, we are probably going to invest, but we are not really like investment fund. We are not venture capitalism ourselves. We really wanted to work side by side. So sometimes there is a two ways approach. Uh, some of the startups are just here to say, oh, I just want your money. Can you put your money to make sure that we are working faster? But that's not where we are going, and we are very clear at the beginning. Well, I think, you know, I, I complimented uh, you on your approach towards startups. A lot of startups, I think you're absolutely correct, want the logo on the PowerPoint. They want to say, this is my new customer or my new investor. And I think it's, it's expectation setting at both ends. And, right. um, 
you know, I think that's the the danger of the startup is that, you know, they're not always transparent in their in their reason of working with you. I mean, uh, so I, uh, but it's interesting that you guys don't spend a lot of time f- from a strategic venturing uh, uh, standpoint. That's just that that some companies really have a very big strategy uh, around strategic venturing and and you know uh, that's a, a innovation acquisition, if you will. But um, mm-hmm. and, and again, that's a very big you know valley thing for you guys to do just out there. You guys being guys on the on the uh, in the Bay Area. But um, it's it's an interesting sort of push pull. I, I it's a strange dynamic, but it sounds like you guys have it handled. So I, I think you know I, I promise not to keep this too long, so that it wouldn't. Uh, you know, generally the the duration of a podcast should be the duration of a, a good run or a good walk or a, a commute. So we're we're kind of at that point. I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe make a final point or final prediction, and then we'll uh, we'll sign off. Any final predictions? Uh, prediction. Uh, I wish I was good at a prediction. Uh, All right. I, what's the coolest thing that you're seeing? <laughs> what's the coolest thing that you're seeing to the extent that you can talk about it, either concept well, or, or, or or product or or offering? I think there's a lot of things. I mean, if you see the, the pace the, on how the cloud providers are handling their service or their offering, you see how much they're evolving. It's amazing. And what, when you see the, the, the direction that machine learning is going through, it's actually really, really interesting. Okay, we, we, we also don't expect it. I, hopefully, we're not going for another uh, AI winter. But I think AI, AI becomes very, very important for everybody, including especially, specifically on the IoT scenario, which I think it's part of the same uh, gigantic monster if you see behind the scene. So I see right. AI as a big, big aspect, and AI helping both the data communication and also making sure that you can do more on the edge compared to what you do today. Uh, I see that is moving forward and actually going faster than what we expected in the past. So I see a lot, a lot of things that we try, we, we try to do before to say everything on the cloud and you do over there. We say, well, yes, we can still do the logic on the cloud, but we can also perform on the, on, the, on the edge side, on the device itself. I see that happening more and more frequently, and I see that is going to be like a big change when it comes back to the, to the IoT side, specifically on the consumer side. I think more and more, if you guys are listening to that, pay very, uh, very much attention on how much an extra value for putting on your device to say a better processor in order to do edge computing and is going to save you a lot of headaches in the future. I think that's, that's some advice that I'll put for everyone here. Innovation at the edge. I love it. I love Absolutely. it. So uh, on behalf of our, our listeners, David, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me and um, this will be available. Uh, you know, I'll tweet it out. Hopefully, you'll tweet it out. And the uh, I know the AWS folks want to uh, reference it as well. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of folks uh, benefit from this because I think it was a very, very good conversation. And um, you know, hopefully, you and I will be working on some things at some of the other conferences I mentioned earlier, like at MIT together, because I think people would find your perspective uh, very interesting. So, David, thank you awesome. so much for, for doing this podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity. I hope you guys enjoy a little bit. And if you have any questions, just let Mark and myself to know that. And, again, thanks for the opportunity on that. Enjoy your day. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye.